This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. It feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, 5pm. Welcome. You're listening to The Cable this Thursday, July the 14th. I'm Guy Johnson in London. Alex Steele, of course, over in New York. I barely know where to begin. Um, another, it's a lot. There's a lot. A, another relaxing day in financial markets. Um, we've seen uh, the euro below parity. Uh, you've got an Italian political crisis that is now blowing up, widening spreads, which poses a huge problem for the ECB. You've got the issue of whether or not the Fed is going to go 75 or 100. We just heard from Waller on that front, uh, speaking to Bloomberg's Mike McKee. Um, banks. You've banks. got the bank story to, to factor into all of this as well. And we still don't know whether the gas is going to be turned off or on. I think you did a pretty good summary there. I think that was pretty good. I mean, it, it feels like what's more imminent is will Mario Draghi resign or not? He's a cabinet so meeting, apparently. The latest headline is that he has not submitted his resignation. Right. But a cabinet meeting at 615 yep. uh, CET. Yep. So that's coming up. We'll look for any headlines as they cross. But that, to me, seems like the another big wild card. Oh, drought. Did you mention drought? Because that's happening. I haven't mentioned the drought. Haven't met, the, there's else. no water in the Rhine. Yeah. So there you go. Which that's a lot. Which is a bit of an issue um, when you want to ship coal up it. Um, so, yeah, no, it's going well. It's going well. There's a, there's, there's a lot of interesting things to dissect. So we've got a great show lined up. We've got some fantastic things to talk about. Let's get some headlines now. Here's Charlie Pellet. I thank you very much indeed, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. One more major issue to add into the mix. Britain's Train Drivers Union says it will strike on Saturday, July 30th, over a pay dispute, creating more transport chaos a day after other rail workers said they would also walk out later this month. The Aslef Labour Group said drivers will stage the day-long stoppage after failing to reach a deal with employers. Members of two other unions will stage a 24-hour strike on July 7th after failing to reach a pay deal. UK property surveyors expect house prices to keep growing over the next year despite a drop in new buyers because of a continuing lack of supply of homes to buy or rent. The Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors, whose members appraise properties up for sale, set a balance of 65 percent of those surveyed recorded price increases in June, down from a high of 78 percent in April. Over the next year, 37 percent do see continued growth. The cost of car repair has shot up so fast it is piling pressure on UK insurance companies. Sabre Insurance Group shares plunged 39.8 percent today in London after warning that everything relating to an insurance claim the car parts, paint, labor, and the cost of replacing the vehicle has risen faster than expected. And that is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Thank you very much indeed, Charlie Pellet. Charlie Pellet will be back in around 30 minutes' time to continue continue to keep us updated on those headlines. Okay. <laughs> we'll just add that to the mix, too. Well, yeah. Well, we need Charlie. Why not? Charlie, Charlie sets us straight, tells us what's going on. Yeah. Um... Okay, Suella Braverman's out. Uh, Sunak is uh, leading the charge. Penny Mordaunt is not far behind him. We've had the second round of voting. Former Chancellor of the Exchequer getting 101 votes. Uh, Mordaunt getting 83. Truss in third place. Liz Truss, that is. Elizabeth Truss with 64 votes. The next ballot is now scheduled for Monday. Bloomberg's uh, political reporter, 
Joe Mays joins us now with an update. Joe, um, is this progressing as expected? Yes, it is. I mean, we expected Braverman or Tugnat to get knocked out today. It was Braverman and Sunak still out in front, Morden still in second. So the shape of the contest is kind of looking, uh, you know, as it was a couple of days ago. In the crucial vote will be Monday in terms of obviously likely Tugnat gets knocked out on these numbers. And then Tuesday, how those votes get redistributed. So we're still very much an open field, open contest. Um, anything could happen now. We have debates on tomorrow night and over the weekend. That could change the complexion of it. But it does feel like it's heading towards a Sunak versus mm-hmm. Mordental Trust runoff. So here in the U.S., debates are, are only really about spin. It's the expectation game into it, and then it's how you spin it afterwards. The actual the words that come out of people's mouths don't actually really matter. What are the debates going to be like there? What's the spin? like? What's the persona they have to give off to really help? It'll be a slightly strange dynamic because there'll be audiences of the general public and they'll be questioned by a presenter. But really, the candidates at this point need to convince Tory MPs. It kind of doesn't matter at all what the general public think of them. The constituency that matters is Tory MPs. And then it'll be grassroots activists. So expect a spectacle where each candidate will try to basically position themselves as the true blue conservative with the most popular policies for those constituencies of people. Um, I think that's the kind of dynamic to expect. For someone like Tom Tugendhat, who's currently in last in the race, there's kind of no real downside to this debate. I mean, he, he, he's going out for this race. He'll need some kind of big, big moment where he captures the imagination if he's to progress. But at least he's got the chance to do that. That's why it's quite exciting for the smaller candidates in this race. You bring up something interesting, which is that there is a a gap between what the Parliamentary Party wants, what the Conservative Party wants, and what the public wants. How big do you think that gap is? I think it's... At, at the moment, the gap feels quite wide in that you have opinion polls showing that the Tory party is behind by some distance versus the main opposition Labour Party, and that's largely because the public have been quite disillusioned by all the scandals around Boris Johnson and so on, and you also have this cost of living crisis, which is kind of creating a lot of um, antagonism between the public and, and the government. And in terms of how to react to that, that's where there's disagreement. So Conservative MPs wanting things like tax cuts, which most candidates are offering, but you have Rishi Sunak in this race being the kind of I'm anti-inflation, I'm the responsible fiscal conservative. That's the kind of main ideological uh, divide in, 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 in this debate. Um, I, I mentioned this earlier on television, but I'll mention it again. So TD Securities had a note out uh, earlier today that said the 2023 election is now their base case. After 12 years of conservative rule, Labour is likely to win. Thus, the new UK leader is likely to have relatively little time to implement a sweeping fiscal agenda. Joe, your thoughts? Yes, yeah, so I, I don't share that view, mainly because it's for the Conservatives to, just, to, to, to choose when the next election happens, and they have until January 2025. That's the maximum limit. So it would be quite strange for them to call an election at a time where they are behind in the polls. You'd assume they'd kind of wait it out and, and, and hope things improve. So I think a 2023 election is a little bit unlikely. I mean, it could happen if the new leader wants a yeah. mandate from the people. Um, but yeah, it looks a little bit unlikely right now. Would it be more likely if Penny Morden were to win, in as much as she is... And I've, and I've read some details of this um, when it comes to uh, a, a, a sort of samples of the public. The, the, the public don't know who she is, and therefore she would be under more pressure to need her, to need her own mandate. Yes, that, 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 that has a lot of sense to I think also, again, playing devil's advocate here, it might be the case that the Conservatives think the economy is 
on a kind of pretty downward trajectory right now. So maybe in the kind of honeymoon phase of our new leader, let's go to the country then whilst there's still kind of this exciting new toy, basically, who can attract lots of people before they get tarnished by events and the economic reality that's kind of hitting the UK at the moment. So that, that, that could happen. But um, yeah, I think more likely than not at this point that uh, the Tories stick it out and the election is later, perhaps 2024. So in terms of um, the sequencing, we get the next uh, vote, right, on Monday. And then are we still looking at September as a leadership transition? Yes, exactly. So Monday night, the next vote, there'll be a vote on Tuesday and Wednesday, as is needed to get us down to two. Then it goes to the party membership, who have about six weeks of huffings, and new leader announced on September 5th. So that's, that's, that's the timetable. Joe, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Joe Mays covering the latest. Uh, We will continue to go back to Joe as we watch this story develop over the next few weeks. Uh, But as Joe indicated, Rishi Sunak, Penny Mordaunt out in front at this point. Uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see whether or not some of the votes over the next few days fall to Liz Truss and whether or not she can ultimately stay in this context. Up next, we're going to go from one political storm to another. At the moment, we understand that Mario Draghi in Rome has not tendered his resignation. But as Alex has pointed out, we have an upcoming cabinet meeting, which could be absolutely fascinating. Political turmoil in Italy is the last thing that Europe needs right now. It's certainly the last thing the ECB needs right now. Um, So we're going to spend a bit of time talking about this next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Listening to The Cable, I'm Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. Guy Johnson uh, is over in London. So let's give you the details as to the political drama uh, that is unfolding currently. So Italy's five-star movement is refusing to back Mario Draghi's government in a confidence vote today. And that raised the prospect that the prime minister could resign, which would trigger a lot more political turmoil. Um, Draghi said that if they boycotted the vote, that he would resign. And this is all over an aid package to combat, in part, rising energy prices. As we know now, According to reports, he has not yet offered his resignation to the president, but there is a cabinet meeting at 6.15 p.m. Now, Guy, we were talking earlier on Bloomberg Television, sort of, how does Mario Draghi at this point not resign? And uh, as Paolo Gentiloni, and we'll talk about uh, his comments in a moment, pointed out, Mario Draghi isn't magic, but the market (laughs) treats him in some ways as magic. How does he not go now? So there's a number of ways. I suspect that a lot of people do not want him to go. And I suspect the, the powers that be, particularly in the form of um, Mr. Mattarella, the president, are, are going to try and find a way to avoid it happening. So one scenario is that, that Mattarella says, OK, you go back, you're going to have talks, you talk to your, to your uh, coalition, and then we'll have another, ca- and then we'll have another, uh, another vote of confidence a little bit further down the road. Now, how long they can string that out remains to be seen. Italy doesn't tend to hold snap elections uh, during the summer months for, for obvious reasons. It's quite warm in Italy right now, and a lot of people are on vacation, particularly sort of late July into August. So it's unlikely that any kind of election would take place uh, before September at the latest, probably late September into October. So that's kind of the earliest you should be thinking about this. Then you then you think about kind of how Mattarella therefore manages it. He needs Draghi to stay in place. So does he basically find a way of punting this down the road mm-hmm. into the autumn? And and that probably is is where the centre of gravity lies here in terms of the distribution of outcomes. But 
maybe Draghi's just had enough. I mean, it's interesting because I feel like the Draghi premium in some ways will now dominate the Italian bond market in that it already for, does, though, I think. For a while, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it, it would, how much that's going to be priced out now? So you had yep. Italian yields up, what, 20, 25 basis points earlier. Then you get that headline that he didn't resign, dot, 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 yet. And now yields are only up 11 basis points. I feel like we used to talk about an Italian political crisis literally every day. And then the second Mario Draghi yep. took the helm, we are like, nope, done, over. He's the adult in the room. He can fix things. Without him, are we back to the constant political turmoil where they just can't form and keep a government and then that's going to yep. be perpetually now priced into BTPs. Well, he, he was going to go next year anyway. So so it's just a question of of kind of how the timeline is ultimately going to develop here. But yeah, that is that risk is definitely there. So to a certain extent, his departure was already priced in. Fully priced in? Definitely not. But then this raises the huge question for the ECB. Mm-hmm. In theory, it should not be using any of its tools to manage political risk. Sure. But if Mario Draghi, Mario Draghi were to depart, you could see this dreaded fragmentation word becoming front and centre, i.e. BTP bun spreads blow out massively. And that would mean that the ECB would be able to say, our monetary policy is not being transmitted effectively to all corners of the Eurozone, as a result of which we need to take action. But that it's a really difficult road to tread for the ECB in that scenario. Particularly at the same time when already the hawks in the ECB and individuals in Germany are calling for conditions to be priced uh, with a fragmentation tool. Yep. Like they just don't want free money to be financed. And when already the fiscal deficit uh, rules were kind of out the window during the pandemic uh, to begin with. And you could argue that with Draghi at the helm, and I under, and I appreciate the fact he was going to step down anyway, but in the middle of a war, a drought, and an energy crisis, having now to put this into it is a whole different is a whole different trust issue when it comes to how Italy is going to manage finances. Yeah, and how that conditionality works is going to be huge. The yeah. OMT, nobody would take the OMT because the conditionality was so strong. What would Italy tolerate in order for that spread management tool to be used? I don't know. Like it's really hard to tell at this stage. The European economy is in a world. Of, we're going to talk about just how much of a world of trouble it is in next because you and I spoke to Paolo Gentiloni. He's the economy commissioner in Brussels. We'll find out what his perspective is right now. They've certainly downgraded significantly already their forecast. We'll hear from him next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London. Alex Steele, of course, over in New York. Let's talk more about what is happening with the Eurozone economy, with the European economy. The European Commission out today with its summer forecast, downgrading growth back half of this year, 2023 as well, upgrading the inflation outlook. But economic forecasts for the Eurozone are at the moment tricky, to put it mildly. The reason for that, we simply don't know whether or not the Russians are going to turn the gas on or whether or not they're going to leave it off. And this is a huge question that we may get the answer to next week. We started off our conversation, therefore, Alex and I, with the Commissioner for the Economy, Paolo Gentiloni, talking about this very issue. How can you make a forecast when you don't know what the outlook is for energy? In these cases, uh, we have our forecast with a baseline scenario, and we have uh, more adverse, more negative scenarios. So what we present uh, officially is our baseline scenario, uh, which is built on the situation we are in now. Of course, we already have several Russian gas cuts, 
We have countries with complete cut, Poland, uh, Denmark, Bulgaria, and we have countries with partial cut of Russian gas, like Germany, Italy, and others. Uh, the baseline scenario is, in any case, a, a baseline of lower growth and higher inflation. Growth at 2.7, inflation at 7.6 this year. Of course, if we will have a complete gas cut, this scenario could even go in a more negative way, and this meaning a negative territory for growth. But at the moment, we are not there. So mm -hmm. the forecast is taking into account the situation we are in now. What happens, Commissioner, if euro dollar stays at one or below parity? What would that then do to your inflation and growth forecast? Well, of course, we, um, we are all uh, looking to the strengthening of the dollar. Uh, we know that uh, this is uh, not particularly against the euro, but against uh, all currencies, against the British pound, against the Japanese yen, uh, and the euro is not uh, weakening uh, against the yen or the pound. Um, the point is that in the past, uh, you could have thought of a advantages of having a weaker uh, currency for export, but in the situation we are in now, this is not an advantage, and it is particularly uh, dangerous, this strong dollar for emerging and low-income countries. And I think that this should be a matter of concern also for us in the more advanced countries. But, but just to come back to the issue of the currency rate and how it's affecting the, the European economy, Commissioner, I'm assuming that you did the calculation on inflation with a higher exchange rate, i.e. When, when the dollar was weaker and the euro was stronger. We'd no longer have that. So can I assume that there is upside risk if we stay with the currency at its current level to your inflation forecast? Well, our, our inflation forecasts are, I have to say, strongly uh, dependent on uh, commodity prices and mostly on energy. If you look to only the energy component of inflation, it is now at 42%. And the energy component of inflation at the beginning of last year was negative. So in our uh, EU economy, uh, the main driver of inflation is not overheating of the economy, is commodity prices and particularly energy prices. Our, consider, our estimate is that we are now peaking the inflation. We will have in this quarter uh, inflation at 8.3%, and we are estimating that in the last quarter of the year it will start a a very slow decrease. But this, of course, is also connected with the evolution of the relation with Russia and Russian gas. This is the main driver of inflation. That was Paolo Gentiloni, EU economy uh, commissioner, joining us there. So, Guy, uh, reportedly, to both of our points, the forecasts were based on 106 in 2022 for euro dollar and 105 in 2023. 
we are at parity. We're pressing below. It feels like the bar is really high for the dollar to top out, which just means more pressure on the euro. Import costs more.、Uh, energy prices cost more. That increases inflation. They don't mention recession, but it's really hard to not get a, a more of a dire outlook here as you look at all the struggles facing Europe. To 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 quote. Many central bankers, actually, but certainly Christine Lagarde, the risks appear to be to the downside、um, when it comes for the Europe when it comes to the European economy. I don't know how you make an economic forecast if、mm-hmm. you don't know what the price of energy is going to be. Like, you can you can roughly work out what's going to happen with euro dollar. It's going to trade. Let's say it trades ninety five to one hundred five. I that that in the big scheme of things is a big range, but it's it's not that big a range. I, who knows what's going to happen with gas? Who knows what's going to happen with the weather? I, these things are just un, just completely unknown at this point in time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.、Um, and and until we figure out what the Russians are going to do, until we figure out whether or not the gas is going to get turned back on again, or it's going to be left off, and how long and- it's going to take to find alternatives, who knows? The, the it is Bastille today, that day in France today. The French president Emmanuel Macron is talking about. Using less energy, he's basically saying to industry, "You must use less." He's saying to consumers, "You must use yes、mm-hmm. less." At some point, this is going to become mandatory. If if this carries on and we don't have energy going into winter, well, there is going to be rationing, and the economic effect of that is going to be dire. And but I also feel like even if July twenty first we see Russian gas come back on Nord Stream one to forty percent, which is where it was when it went down for、yep. maintenance, that doesn't mean that twenty four hours later the threat doesn't exist.、No. This is going to this is a rolling threat, so it's not like we avoid it just come Thursday. And I don't know how an economy manages that longer term. We just we do not know. And therefore, I think you're just putting your your finger up into the wind. I'm if, getting pretty pe- making, pessimistic about Europe. I got to be honest. Making economic forecasts, and we're going to talk about another angle on it next. It's pretty hot out there, and it's getting hotter. This is Bloomberg. This is the cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to the Cable. I'm Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. Guy Johnson over in London. So there's a lot of interesting things happening in U.S. markets、uh, as well. So yes, we get bank earnings, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley.、Uh, both of those stocks are down. We'll get to the why and what to expect tomorrow、um, from the big banks in a moment.、Um, also, we had Chris Waller who's speaking in Victor, Idaho, and he spoke with Michael McKee, and he's known as a hawk, and he was talking about how a 75 basis point rate hike. Is huge and is his base case, and is not rethinking a hundred just based on one CPI number. He wants to take the next couple weeks, look at the data points. He's looking at demand and retail sales、uh, tomorrow to help decide what to do next. He also said that it's very possible to pull down demand and pull down prices without a recession. That you can have a growth recession, but the growth doesn't go negative because the unemployment rate is still 3.6 percent. That was interesting because it had an immediate impact on the bond market. Two-year yield now pretty much flat. Earlier it had been、uh, sell the front end, buy the long end, and we're going to hike faster and then have to cut earlier、uh, scenario. And now that kind of reversed a little bit. You're seeing some selling on the back end. Ten-year yields now up by about six basis points. So that's kind of the backdrop that we're dealing with、uh, within the U.S. equity market. Those are your headlines for the market.、Let's Let's get your other headlines with Charlie Pellet. I thank you very much, Alex Steele. Want to talk about two major stories in the United Kingdom: heat and travel. We begin with the rails, and travelers will be facing more misery this summer as train drivers say they will strike July 30th, three days after a separate walkout, and only weeks after earlier labor action shut down much of the network. 
The Aslov Labor Group says members will stage the day-long stoppage after failing to reach a pay deal with employers. Two other unions, including the National Union of Rail, Maritime and Transport Workers that led the worst strike in three decades last month, will stage a 24-hour walkout on July 27th. Well, right now in the UK, the focus very much on a hot weekend ahead, but Europe, though, could face a tough winter, even with higher energy costs, as according to Shell's CEO, Ben Van Burden. European governments and industries are on edge as gas supplies through a crucial pipeline are halted because of maintenance, and it's not clear if they will ever return. Van Burden says there's no way to tell if the situation could escalate further into a full shutdown of flows. The Gulf carrier Emirates says it will not comply with London Heathrow's decision to impose a two-month cap on daily flights, blaming the airport for underinvestment and calling the move unreasonable. And it has never been more expensive to get a hotel room in London after rates rose to a record last month on the back of increased travel by tourists. A night in a London hotel now costs an average of £209 in June, uh, amid the strongest demand in almost three years. This according to preliminary data compiled by STR. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. Yeesh. That sounds like a lot of money. And but I hope that air conditioning's working there. Yeah. <laughs> Check with Guy Johnson on that. Uh, yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, actually, hotels in London do have air conditioning. Just nobody else does. Although there was a great article, uh, was it in the Bloomberg, that said um, the way to get your staffers back now into the office is by providing air conditioning. Forget flexible work schedules. <laughs> give yeah, them air conditioning. It's cooler in the office than it is at home. That's a good reason to come to the office. There it is. There it is. And it might not get any better, to be honest, really anywhere in, in, in Europe or quite here here in the U.S. too. I mean, Texas is doing some power grid rationing right now as we speak. Um, Europe is getting hotter and hotter, though. Mm-hmm. A- and if we think we've got it bad in London, and to be fair, I'm going to the Farm Barrage show on Monday. It's going to be 37 degrees. But, but y- Europe is frying. Uh, and this is becoming increasingly what feels like a regular occurrence. We're going to burn more coal this year because, well, we don't have the gas. Uh, and as a result of which, the whole environmental story is being thrown up in the air. Uh, and it's becoming, well, to excuse the pun, a hot potato, an increasingly hot potato. And it's the subject today uh, of our Bloomberg Big Take. Um, Laura uh, Millen Lombrana, who joins us now to discuss all of this. I- Sorry about that. I think I yeah, nearly it, got that right. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Okay. I'm <laughs> sure Alex well. would have done much better. Not. It's not an easy one. Um, nice one. Thanks, Guy. Joins us now. <laughs> we, we often get these things right on television. Um, joins us now to discuss all of this. Lauren, it, it feels like this is becoming a regular thing. How bad is it this year? Um, it's pretty bad. Um, we'll have to wait until the end of the year to see how bad it is. Um, by the end of the year, we'll, we'll see if... Uh, this has been hotter, the hottest year ever, um, among one of the hottest. For sure, it will have been one of the hottest. Um, what we have seen in Europe this summer is a string of heat waves, uh, practically one after another. So we saw an early one that hit um, uh, France and Spain in May. We saw the really bad one in June um, with uh, high temperatures in the UK, in Spain, France, Portugal. and. We're we're seeing one happening right now. You mentioned this 37 degrees over the weekend here in the UK. Um, in Spain, we're expecting uh, in southern Spain as high as 45, 46. Whoa. Portugal hit 46 yesterday. 
um, France, pretty high temperatures as well. So the whole of Western Europe is um, is, is pretty bad right now. And yeah, yeah there, there's no way to tell what will happen to, into the summer. Just to translate that for Alex, it's the 113, 115 degrees. Just, sort of. I, I know that anything over 30 makes guys super anxious. So I know that's like over 90. I, I used to live in the Gulf. 45 was a kind of, that, that's the temperature you, you kind of get used to if you live in Dubai. Just, oh, just for frame God. of reference. Your lung capacity must be terrible if that happens. Um, Laura, first of all, great to talk to you. Laura um, was my go-to person in South America for a very long time on all things commodities. So it's great to chat with you on this. Um, I wonder what the, we talk a lot about how it has to deal with energy and the energy crisis, et cetera, and coal. But there's also an enormous food crisis um, that is erupting. And I wonder this kind of drought and how it's affecting crops. And that if you can't plant something today, that's going to affect what the crop looks like next year. So the ramifications can be even longer when it comes to this. That's right. And it's actually, if you think the energy story is scary, well, you start reading about agriculture and the implications of drought, and it gets even scarier. Like you say, um, the climate scientists I've been talking to and experts on climate and and food supply systems, they warn that drought is one of the most complex uh, problems of climate change, one of the most complex effects of climate change, because it's not just a heat wave that can happen over one day, two days, one week, but the effects of drought can be felt for years, um, just because, like you said, it can affect crops. It means that crop yields are lower, um, production is lower, and that just uh, filters or like trickles down through through the supply chain and uh, rises prices, uh, leads to shortages um, all over the world. And, and again, yes, the effects can be felt for years. It, what can be done about it? I, I, tackling climate change is obviously a, a wider issue, but just in the more kind of immediate, what, what can governments do? Right now, what governments are doing is reacting in emergency mode. So they're approving, we've seen it in Italy, in Spain, in Portugal, in France as well. They're approving uh, subsidies for farmers to, first of all, so they can um, withstand the, 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 the heat um, of these high temperatures and, and likely bad year for crops. Um, there you can um, take measures to improve uh, water efficiency. And then there are other um, emergency measures that they can take. But when I talk to the climate scientists and to the people experts on uh, adapting to climate change, they insisted that um, one good thing, so the bad news is that drought is really bad and, and, and can extend yeah. through many years. The good news is that we have many solutions for it. So over the long term, again, improving water efficiency, reservoirs, yep. um, new technologies and so on can help. Laura, thanks very much. It was a pleasure. Laura Milan, uh, Lombrana, definitely check out the Big Take story on the Bloomberg. It has an amazing and scary pictures of exactly what Laura has been talking about and those potential solutions. All right, coming up, we're going to get back to the market, talk more about J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, what the big takeaways are from the big U.S. banks. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Potential outcomes uh, from a soft landing to a hard landing, driven by how much rates go up, the effect of quantitative tightening, uh, the effect of volatile markets. It's not going to change how we run the company. We've managed through recessions before. We'll manage it again. I'm quite comfortable. Do it quite well. 
That was, of course, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, uh, on the conference call earlier today. Uh, as the ba- big banks reported, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, it was overall quite disappointing. They're also putting up a lot more loans, uh, um, or charge-offs, and reserving more money for loans. Uh, J.P. Morgan also had to scrap their buyback uh, program because they had to have higher capital requirements. So a lot to digest uh, in those earnings numbers. So Shanali Basic uh, joining us now, the hardest person working in the building over the next tw- uh, 48 hours. Um, Shanali. You've had a couple hours to digest at this point. What's your biggest takeaway from the two big guys? Well, you look at the loan books here, and you think about whether they are able to make a lot more money in a higher interest rate environment, and how much that's offset by the uncertainty ahead. And you think perhaps what has happened here is that investors have already baked in net interest income expectations, and and this is about as good as it's going to get. And so what you're left with then is a lot of uncertainty and too much downside risk, even for banks that have sold off nearly 30%. So J.P. Morgan, if you look at the expectations from analysts, even after now returning to provisioning for loan losses, for the next couple of quarters, analysts expect those provisions to keep getting bigger. So uh, that uncertainty, Mm. this may not be the worst of it. Yeah, Jamie Dimon sounded quite positive about the consumer, I thought. Yeah, and that is the measured tone here, I think, is very, very, very important because he had said and his CFO had said that discretionary spending has not taken a huge hit yet. And to the extent that loans are under pressure, mortgages, for example, he was saying that a lot of banks have gotten out of the mortgage business in a big way already and that it may not be the best place for banks to be operating anyways because in this period of time, because the Fed tells them to or otherwise, they really need to be uh, preserving capital. And and being much more conservative with how they how they think about lending ahead equals boring. Are banks really boring now? You know, it's funny because you. I know I'm like insulting your children is what I just (laughs) basically did, but you know, for the rest of us, are banks basically just boring? You, you know, you're asking a question that's always frustrated me, because if you cover the banking industry after 2008, you saw so much of this lending go into non-banks. And you see J.P. Morgan, for example, just today take a $257 million markdown on loans tied to big buyouts. And you think, okay, wait a minute, like you don't love your big universal banks taking hundreds of millions of dollars worth of hits. Is some of this better that it has gone into the private markets, into the private equity firms? But is some of that risky in a different way? I don't think that the regulators have ever really done a proper analysis of it. That is something that's gotten pushed down the road for a long time as well. In terms of what's happening in trading, James Gorman was highlighting just how volatile it is. Is this different in terms of the risk, though, they are taking on? Like in the past, somebody was telling uh, us this uh, on TV a little bit earlier on. You'd have seen probably at least one bank, at least one trading organization being carried out on a stretcher at this point. That's not (laughs) happening at this point. Well, you know. Funny, not funny. uh, Yeah, I mean, you know, you're glad they're not, right? But at the same time, you do see a lot of one-off events in a very short period of time. Memories are very short on Wall Street, but Archegos wasn't that long ago. You're seeing what's happening over at Credit Suisse. Uh, J.P. Morgan had a, a lot of volatility tied to a single nickel client. One client blew out their VAR significantly last quarter. And so you were seeing all of these one-off events really impact the banks. And yes, it's not sinking the banks, it's not taking them down, but it certainly impacts operations. And it makes it hard, uh, just in their normal course of business, to really uh, provide the liquidity that they want to in markets, or need to in markets, or that their clients, frankly, want them to take in markets. 
Shanali, great coverage. Looking forward to it continuing tomorrow. Thank you very much indeed. Bloomberg's Shanali Basak. Uh, up next, we're going to return the focus to the Fed. Uh, Chris Waller today uh, talking to Bloomberg's Mike McKee. Tamping down expectations for a 100 basis point hike, but th the market is certainly looking at that debate now. Is it 75 or 100? We've certainly moved on from 50 to 75 uh, in fairly swift order. So let's just let's talk about kind of what could happen here. What are the, the moving parts here from the Fed's point of view? We'll do that next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You are listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. We have just had the news that I think a lot of people in the Eurozone in Italy have been fearing. Italy's Mario Draghi says that he will resign. This is a huge blow, a huge blow for not only Italy, but for the Eurozone and the ECB. Mario Draghi has been a beacon of stability for Italy and by extension has removed that Italian risk from the equation when Europe is having to deal with so many other issues. But he is now saying that he has offered or will offer his resignation to the president. I don't know the the nuances of Italian politics and whether or not the president will refuse that resignation and find another way around this. But the headline that is on the screen, Alex, in front of me, is that Draghi will resign. And there's only one one real way to trade this right now and express that view since the bond market in Europe is closed, and that's through euro dollar. We're moving lower. We're not at the lows of the session yet, but it does look like a straight arrow down at this point. Now we're down to spot 9989 at this moment. Now, I've heard that the president can refuse his resignation and make him go back and try to yep. reform a coalition. Um. I don't really know or how maybe that have is a good government, a, but they can have do a that. Confident, or ha, so, so my understanding is the, that maybe that is the case, but I don't know that. Um, but I'm assuming that certainly Mattarella would push in that direction and say to mm -hmm. Draghi, go back, hold more talks, we'll have a confidence vote further down the road. This is not the time to be holding snap elections in Italy. Um, and I think everybody knows that. Um this has blown up because mm -hmm. of a number of different factors. Italy will not want to have an election probably before the end of September, October. So there needs to be a route around this. Mm -hmm. um, so he's going to resign. Maybe that's just maybe that's what is required here to get some sort of a coalition couple back together. Don't I feel like we've been here before. It's a high risk game, though. Um, Alessandro Speciale uh, joins us now on the phone to talk through this. Alessandro, this was sort of the, the worst case scenario that's emerged over the last 24 hours. What do we know? Uh, what What's he going to do? What's the president going to do? Okay, uh, so the communication just came out. So Draghi went to uh, visit the president, Mattarella, this afternoon, and then he convened the cabinet meeting. And at the cabinet meeting, he told his ministers that he will resign tonight and that the national unity uh, majority, the national unity coalition that was back in his government uh, isn't there anymore. So that the conditions for uh, his technocratic government aren't there anymore. Uh, this is this is the news for tonight, and then it remains to be seen whether he can walk back. It doesn't say that, as uh, you say sometimes, that the uh, resignation is non-negotiable, it's final. So yeah. there might be some room for negotiation, but it's still too early to tell. When would be the earliest we would see elections? 
no earlier than early September because of the, the Italian constitution at some technical times. You need uh, 45 days or rather two months to organize elections. And of course, now there's going to be the president of the republic who becomes very powerful, is the key figure when there is a government crisis, will now convene all the parties and try to figure out if Draghi still has a majority and what happens next. Mm-hmm. And uh, early elections are really the last option. So Draghi apparently told his cabinet that the government majority does not exist anymore. Can the president refuse their resignation and, and, and push the issue? Or if there is no government majority, is it just over? Yes, yes, of course. I mean, and Draghi and Draghi's government will stay on for now to handle current affairs because, of, of course, there can be a void of power. But this means that every initiative is suspended. And now it's in the hands of the parties and especially in the hands of the president to map the way forward. If there is a way to reconstruct this majority, if Draghi is available to take it, uh, it hasn't been very compromising so far. He feels that the pact of trust between him and the parties that elected him uh, has broken. And we will see if this can be walked back. Draghi was due to go when? He was going to have to step down, wasn't he? Is this just an acceleration of that process of the parties? Was it always going to be like this? The last few months of his tenure were always going to be very volatile. Exactly. It came, to be frank, a bit earlier than expected. Uh, Usually in September, there is a budget law, which was supposed to be the final main act of Draghi's government. And there is a a bunch of uh, laws that need to be passed and projects that need to be approved in order for Italy to get the next tranche of human. I mean, we are talking 20, 25 billion euros at the end of December. And then parliament is due to be dissolved. I mean, the the end the parliament, the Sorry, the term of parliament ends in spring 2023 with elections between March and May. Uh, So this was the natural end of Draghi's government. So this is about nine months earlier. Uh, Who is high enough in European and Italian politics who could help fill the void? Like, who are some of the, the names out there, either be a successor or someone from a different party? Well, all the, all the party leaders will be vying to take his place, but this can only happen after elections because the parliament, the current parliament was elected in 2018 and the populist five-star movement, the movement that actually pulled the plug on Draghi's government today, was riding high in the polls. It got 33% of the consensus. It is now polling around 5%. So you can see how it is completely changed and the current parliament is not representative of Italy as it is now. So none of the leaders can claim any legitimacy before new elections. Draghi changed the way that Brussels, that Europe treated Italy. Do we go back to Europe treating Italy as unreliable? Well, it's definitely difficult to think that things are going to be different, at least for the next few days. I mean, Italy is the biggest recipient of the European Union's first joint borrowing, a sea change and a leap forward in European unity. After the pandemic, uh, Italy was due to receive around 200 billion euros over five years to reconstruct and modernize its economy, an amount of investment that Italy hasn't seen for the past 25 years. And Draghi, being in government, was one of the main guarantors that this money would be spent well and would be spent for meaningful projects. Now, any possibility that other initiatives like that from the European Union, other joint borrowing to help Mm -hmm. the weaker members, this remains on hold. 
Alessandro, thanks for jumping on the line and updating us. Uh, really important story breaking out of Italy. Mario Draghi tendering his resignation. Euro dollar trading at spot 9988 below parity. Hope you enjoyed the show. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg.